Welcome to Psychiatry Today. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news, including everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, how to improve your relationships, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness. Along the way, trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it by better educating the general public about mental health issues. All that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry. And welcome again to this edition of Psychiatry Today, which was pre-recorded for airing initially on Wednesday, April the 6th, 2016 at 7 p.m. on americaswebradio.com. And hope that you've been feeling well. Hope that you didn't get pranked too badly this last Friday on April Fool's Day. Um, we're going to start talking about a much more serious subject. In fact, one of the most serious subjects regular and long-time listeners will know that among the various mental health issues that I focus on quite regularly is that of the mental health of our people who serve in the military and the mental health of our veterans of the military. And I have an important but disturbing update for you on the health uh, of our people who serve in the armed forces. The uh, fact is the military suicides are disturbingly high again for the seventh year. The increase is driven largely by data from the Army. The Pentagon reported this past Friday that 265 active duty service members killed themselves in 2015, continuing a trend of unusually high suicide rates that have plagued the United States military for at least seven years. The numbers of suicides among troops was 145 in 2001. It began a steady increase until more than doubling to 321 in 2012, the worst year in recent history for service members killing themselves. The suicide rate for the Army that year was nearly 30 suicides per 100,000 soldiers, well above the national rate of 12.5 per 100,000 for 2012. It's not only disturbing in its own right, this news, but the fact that the rate in the armed services is so much higher, more than twice as high as that in the civilian population. Military suicides dropped 20% in 2013 and then held roughly steady at numbers significantly higher than during the early 2000s. 
the 265 suicides last year compares with 273 in 2014 and 254 in 2013. By contrast, from 2001 through 2007, suicides never exceeded 197. A Pentagon spokeswoman, Marine Lieutenant Colonel Hermes Gabrielle, said, Suicide prevention remains a top priority, and the department will continue its efforts to reduce deaths by suicide among its service members. Reducing suicide risk entails creating a climate that encourages service members to seek help. Her comments are right on target. If soldiers or sailors or marines or airmen think that asking for help with mental health issues is going to harm their career, uh, hold them back from promotions, uh, lower their esteem in the eyes of their peers or their commanders or those under their command, then They're not going to seek that type of help. And it's this macho-type culture in the Army, in particular in the armed services in general, that people in the Department of Defense have been trying to alleviate. Uh, And among the efforts by the military to combat suicide was a $5 million long-term study by the Army that eventually produce algorithms for predicting what group of soldiers is most likely to commit suicide. The Department of Veterans Affairs has embraced the the science and will soon launch a pilot program for helping its therapists concentrate efforts on those veterans with strong self-destructive tendencies. The increase in suicide in the military was driven largely by the Army, where suicides rose sharply from 45 in 2001 to 165 in 2012. The Army reported 120 suicides last year, the same as in 2013, and down from 124 in 2014. Data out last Friday also showed that suicides among reservists in the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, and the National Guard were 210 last year, an increase from 170 suicides in 2014, but down from 220 suicides in 2013. U.S. troops have been at war continuously, really, since 2001 in Afghanistan and fought in the Iraq War from 2003 to 2011. Well, while it is important that the military is now doing more than ever to track this issue and conduct research into what's behind these alarmingly high suicide rates and therefore try to, uh, as I said, come up with algorithms to uh, look for 
soldiers who are at risk and somehow find a way to intervene before something serious happens. Uh, there are things that we in the civilian population can do. Um, <clears throat> we always hear about, hey, do what you can to support the troops. Support the troops is an important rallying cry. Uh, however, I would like to add that I think one of the biggest things that we can do to support our troops is to support their families here uh, back home or uh, if they live on base or off base regardless. Because worrying about what's going on with their families back home is a big reason uh, for stress and depression that our soldiers suffer from. And uh, I've had some limited first-hand experience with this when I worked in Columbus, Georgia, and uh, a lot of family members of soldiers who were stationed at Fort Benning would go off post for psychiatric help. And to talk to some of the people in these families, there's a lot of issues that they struggle with and that causes uh, the family member who's deployed to feel under a lot of stress. So what can we in the civilian population do to support our troops and that that would have a major positive impact on the troops' mental health? Well, help their families here. Um, volunteer to watch the kids while they go and take care of things they need to take care of for themselves. Um, help them organize tasks like keeping track of bills and expenses to make sure that things get paid in a timely fashion, utilities don't get worn off, mortgages found to be in arrears, HOA payments are paid on time, and the home doesn't wind up in foreclosure. Um, <clears throat> be there to help when the parent who's home is overwhelmed with keeping up with the household, the kids' issues, doing it all himself, and needs help. Um, having people here to help military families negotiate these obstacles, deal with being the single parent because of the deployed parent uh, not being able to help, uh, that will definitely go a long way toward helping to benefit the mental health of our troops. Hopefully in the future I'll be able to bring to you news that the rates of suicide in the military are decreasing at least uh, to get them down to that of the civilian population. Next up on psychiatry today, why is it that some people succumb to very severe stress and suffer from mental health problems in the face of that stress, yet others don't. What is it about the more resilient people that is different from the people who don't seem to be as resilient? And this is a very sensitive issue, of course, because it strikes right at the heart of what I always talk about, the stigma associated with mental illness. One of the things uh, that people struggle with is too many people mistakenly see 
mental illness as a weakness of will or character. Uh, they say, well, just suck it up, be strong, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, nonsensical cliches like that uh, that don't have any bearing or on, on understanding the person's situation that they actually uh, are suffering from an illness, uh, which is biologically and physically based, having nothing to do with character defects. Nonetheless, there is a science of looking at characteristics of resilient behavior. And after our first commercial break, we'll look at how scientists are studying uh, this in rodents to see if they will eventually be able to uh, look for clues in humans about what qualities bring about uh, resilience and how this looks in the brain. We'll be right back with that and more mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. It's not just your garden. It's the way you live. And there's so much to know. But you have help. Bonnie Plants. Now with Bonnie's app, Homegrown, you can learn about veggie and herb varieties, track and record your garden with photos and notes, share on Facebook and Twitter, and so much more. How'd you ever grow without it? Get Homegrown with Bonnie Plants for iPhone and Android. The more you know, the better you can grow with Bonnie. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. And now we're looking at a study that examines why people may feel more helpless in stressful situations than others. Scientists have identified a list of brain areas that might have a critical role to play 
in stress-induced depression. Some people are able to cope with stress much better than others. Some individuals are resilient while others succumb to despair. The reason scientists have discovered is all in the brain. Well, I want to emphasize before we go further in examining this that even though scientists have been able to demonstrate there are these differences in the brain that may account for uh, differences in resiliency or not, uh, ultimately that is all based on genetics. This is why stress and anxiety, uh, which leads to anxiety disorders, typically runs in families, as does depression. So, stress, we're all too familiar with it. More of us than ever are feeling the relentless pressure of busy lives, and it is taking its toll. In the United States, stress-related ailments cost the nation $300 billion every year, medical bills, and lost productivity. But it seems some people are able to cope with this problem much better than others. Some individuals are resilient, while others succumb to despair. The reason scientists have discovered is all in the brain. So they're trying to answer the question, why is it that some people handle stress better than others. And examining this issue hopefully will lead to ways to help everyone become more resilient. Now, <clears throat> mapping the brain activity in mice when placed under stress, scientists have found that mice showing helpless behavior had vastly different brain activity from those displaying resilient behavior. Certain patterns were revealed in the stressed brain, and the scientists identified a list of brain areas that might have a critical role to play in stress-induced depression. Looking at these brain activities, a study published in Frontiers in Neural Circuits opens up possibilities for identifying new targets for the treatment of depression. They explain that with the exception of a few brain areas, mice showing helpless behavior had an overall brain-wide reduction in the level of neuronal activation. Uh, neuronal refers to simply just brain cells, compared with mice showing resilient behavior. In addition, the helpless mice showed a strong trend of having higher similarity in whole brain activity profile among individuals, suggesting that helplessness is represented by a more stereotypic brain-wide activation pattern. Helpless behavior in the face of stress is distinctly recognizable in the brain and common to those animals displaying helplessness. The scientists said that they uncovered abnormally stereotypic brain activity in helpless animals. Helpless mice had more brain activity in common than the resilient mice. Moreover, those mice that showed helpless behavior had significantly lower levels 
of overall brain activity. The scientists found that this included the prefrontal cortex, a brain region associated with organizing our thoughts and actions, and which has been implicated in mood or anxiety disorders. The helpless group also showed lower brain activation in areas vital for processing emotion and motivation, areas important for defensive behavior, those key for stress coping, and those associated with learning and memory. However, there was one area of the brain that lit up more in helpless mice, and that was the locus ceruleus. According to the study, this strongly suggests that the area has a significant role to play in stress-induced depression. It provides an opportunity for further study and could be significant for future treatments of depression. More, res more research is required to determine whether these brain cell changes are causally related to the expression of helplessness or resilience. Well, I think it's interesting that they saw the locus ceruleus being more active in the brains of the mice showing more signs of stress. Um, locus ceruleus, um, roughly translated, is blue sight, and uh, it's a sight in the brain that stains blue with certain uh, dyes that are used to uh, get a better microscopic look at brain's tissue. That's where it gets its name. But uh, what intrigues me about the connection to this study is that it's this one of the, the main centers, if not the main center, of uh, cells that work in the norepinephrine pathways. And it's well known to be involved in anxiety and panic attack symptoms. Um, so it makes a lot of sense to me that they would find that area lit up more in mice that are under stress and, and feeling helpless. So interesting. Um, again, it's one thing for scientists to look at this in a much, much simpler brain than ours, a rodent brain, and say, okay, well, we see a difference in the brain between stress-susceptible and resilient mammals. It's quite another thing to translate that into a uh, human brain and furthermore to come up with treatments uh, to account for these differences in activity in brain areas, whether someone is resilient or stress-susceptible. Nonetheless, uh, it is uh, a lot of important clues in that direction. Uh, hopefully it will lead to something that will uh, add to the treatments we have. Next up on Psychiatry Today, a study that finds that practice doesn't always make perfect. And the conclusion is you can brain, blame your noisy brain for misses and fumbles. Uh, this study comes to us from Duke University, and 
It's not new that our brains and the brain cells within it are noisy. The exact timing of a brain cell as it produces spikes of electrical activity transmits crucial information. But if a single brain cell fires irregularly and inconsistently, even when a person is performing the same motion repeatedly, then something can disrupt it. Even our most practiced movements are imperfect. When pro basketball players shoot free throws, they need to release the ball the same way every time, but they still miss game-winning shots. The reason for this frustration, according to a new study by neuroscientists at Duke University, is in how we sense the world. The response of a given brain cell varies in its activity, even when we see exactly the same scene, essentially producing a certain kind of brain noise that affects our responding movements. These new findings are published in the April 6th edition of the journal Neuron. Understanding the noise in the nervous system and how it can work to cause inaccuracies in movement is a critical step in understanding how we move. These findings may help explain why our signatures don't look the same every time, why our tennis stroke doesn't always hit the ball where we want it, or why we mistype a key on the keyboard. It's not new that our brains and the brain cells within are noisy. The exact timing of a brain cell as it produces spikes of electrical activity transmits crucial information. But if a single brain cell fires irregularly and inconsistently, even when a person is performing the same motion repeatedly. In the new study, the researchers analyzed electrical activity of single brain cells firing in the brains of monkeys that were tracking a dot moving across a computer screen. A region called the MT within the visual region of the brain is responsible for guiding these particular eye movements and for perceiving motion in general. Each brain cell responds to the moving dot with a particular delay. Unexpectedly, the delay of one neuron in response to a particular motion linked up with the delay of another neuron in the MT. When one neuron fired a little early, so did its neighbor. A group of brain cells is a bit like a raucous crowd packed into a basketball stadium, as we just recently saw, with the Final Four having been completed this past uh, weekend and Monday night. When they are uncoordinated, individual cheers are hard to hear. But when everyone's chanting in synchrony, you can pick out the words from the other noise. The latter phenomenon, what the research team calls correlated noise, becomes a meaningful signal. 
Remarkably, the delay in a single MT brain cell predicts the size of the delay in the monkey's responding eye movements. We get that finding because the whole population of brain cells is correlated and they are fluctuating together. This is likely happening all over the brain. Future work will focus on variations of individual brain cells in the motor areas of the brain. Well, let's take another commercial break. We'll finish up our thoughts on how the brain misfires at times and other mental health-related news. After that, listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one, can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your source for all mental health-related news. And we're talking about a study that explains why you miss something sometimes that you do all the time and do the same way each time. Well, the researchers acquired data from the brain during movement and developed new computational tools and simulations. Their efforts have resulted in a freely available computational tool for more precisely predicting 
when a brain cell is responding to a single event. Historically, it has been a challenge to separate noise from signal when recording from individual brain cells. Other studies have recorded from single brain cells multiple times and lined up electrical spikes from each trial to determine when the brain cell might be responding to a given stimulus, as opposed to just firing randomly. But in real life, our perceptions and actions arise from the single responses of many brain cells, rather than many responses of a single brain cell. Further analysis of variation in brain cell responses is going to allow understanding of how the sensory and motor parts of the brain work together to generate reliable and accurate movements. Hmm. I wonder what applications that could have someday. Maybe athletes will try to exploit this. You never know. All right. Well, next up on psychiatry today, we're going to um, continue to discover new things about <clears throat> brain and behavior and some of um, the reasons why we may be able to be motivated to behave in a certain way at certain times, <clears throat> such as are we going to be selfish or are we going to be altruistic? Well, it turns out, according to some scientists at the University of Zurich, brain connectivity reveals hidden motives. Often it is hard to understand why people behave the way they do, because their true motives remain hidden. Researchers have now shown how people's motives can be identified as they are characterized by a specific interplay between different brain regions. They also show how empathy motives increase altruistic behavior in selfish people. Now that could result in interesting applications, couldn't it? Make selfish people act more altruistically. That sounds good, doesn't it? Well, that's probably a bit much to ask, but let's see what the researchers found in any case. Uh, the new study suggests that the specific alignment of neural networks in the brain dictates whether a person's altruism was motivated by selfish or altruistic behavior. To understand human behaviors, it is crucial to understand the motives behind them. So far, there is no direct way to identify motives. Simply observing behavior or eliciting explanations from individuals for their actions will not give reliable results as motives are considered to be private and people can be unwilling to unveil or even be unaware of their own motives. Researchers found that the way relevant brain regions communicate with each other is altered depending on the motives driving a specific behavioral choice. Now this was studied by psychologists and scientists from the Department of Economics at University of Zurich and uh, 
what they were looking at was this interplay between brain regions that allowed them to identify the underlying motives. These motives could not be uncovered by observing the person's choices or based on the brain regions that are activated during the decision-making. So in order to examine the connections between brain regions linked to motives, uh, during the study, participants were placed in a functional MRI scanner. Now this type of scanner is not just your normal MRI machine that uh, your doctor might send you to at your regular local imaging center to examine your brain, to see if you've had a stroke, to examine one of your joints, to see if you're having uh, some reason behind the pain, arthritis or what have you. Functional MRI is very different in that you can see what is going on in different areas of the brain in real time. Um, you can see whether an area of the brain becomes more or less active while the subject in the scanner is doing something or thinking about something right at the time they're being scanned. This gives us insights into the inner workings of the brain and how it relates to uh, behavior and emotion. <clears throat> so the people in the scanner were uh, making altruistic decisions driven either by an empathy motive, that is the desire to help a person for whom one feels empathy, or a reciprocity motive, the desire to reciprocate an individual's previous kindness. So obviously what happened was the researchers were setting up the subjects to have one of these two different motivations, either the empathic one or the reciprocity one. Simply looking at the functional activity of specific regions of the brain wasn't able to reveal the motive underlying the decisions. Broadly speaking, the same areas in the brain lit up in both settings. However, researchers were able to investigate the interplay between these brain regions and found marked differences between empathy-based and reciprocity-based decisions. The impact of the motives on the interplay between different brain regions was so fundamentally different that it could be used to classify the motive of a person with high accuracy. Well, so it's not looking at the specific activity of certain areas that enable the scientists to tell whether someone was being <clears throat> altruistic for one reason or another. It was the activity between regions showing interconnectivity and interactivity. Um, this immediately raises the question, okay, well, what, if anything, would be the practical application of this, um, looking at uh, being able to put someone in a scanner and see what their motivations are? Um, certainly doesn't sound like it would have any uh, positive 
practical application, unfortunately, it brings to mind uh, darker uh, motives of the, the researchers themselves, uh, mind manipulation, things like that, perhaps. Well, let's, uh, let's see what uh, the article talks about in terms of the findings. A further important result is that motives are processed differently in selfish and pro-social people. Yeah, this might tell us a little more about possible applications of this. In selfish people, the empathy but not the reciprocity motive increased the number of altruistic decisions. After activating the empathy motive, in other words, the desire to help a person that they feel empathy for, selfish people resembled persons with pro-social preferences in terms of brain connectivity and altruistic behavior. In contrast, pro-social people, to start with, behaved even more altruistically after activating the reciprocity motive, that is, doing something nice for someone who did something for you, but not the empathy motive. Well, and this sounds a little bit subtle and confusing, but what it tells me is that if someone already has the innate tendency to be pro-social or empathic, then trying to artificially create uh, this empathy motive using this manipulation does not show any changes in your brain. Uh, this is the way their brain is already wired. And that tells you that this tendency to be pro-social and altruistic is just one of many personality characteristics that is hardwired in the brain and perhaps has genetic determinants. What's also interesting about this, we're talking about, you know, perhaps nefarious um, motives on the part of scientists at mind manipulation, well, if you can get so selfish people to show changes in the brain similar to more pro-social people by activating their empathy motive, you know, wouldn't that help? Um, and how do you figure out ways to do that? Uh, you know, so again, I agree it's, it's subtle and applications are limited, but I think the interesting and important take-home message from this is that even when it comes to things like being selfish or not, being altruistic or not, and furthermore, being altruistic for various different reasons, whether you just have empathy with someone or whether you're trying to help them because they helped you, we can show differences in the activity in the brain among people who have these different feelings and different motivations. It really tells us how much uh, we can uh, ascribe certain personality traits and human traits to specific areas of the brain. And, you know, it really tells us how far brain science has come. <clears throat> Again, um, agree, potential applications, probably limited, 
Perhaps, someday, certainly it remains to be seen. All right, well, we're going to take another commercial break. When we come back, we'll have more mental health-related news. You are listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call. And I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. And next up on tonight's podcast, a very interesting and elegant bit of brain research to relate to you, uh, looking at a de- in a detailed way at how the brain processes emotions. Uh, the circuits that neuroscientists have identified could play a role in several types of mental illness, including and especially depression. Some mental illnesses may stem in part from the brain's inability to correctly assign emotional associations to events. For example, people who are depressed often do not feel happy even when experiencing something that they normally enjoy. 
Indeed, that's really at the core of the illness that is depression, is the lack of enjoyment in things. A new study from MIT reveals how two populations of brain cells contribute to this process. The researchers found that these particular groups of brain cells located in an almond-sized region of the brain known as the amygdala form parallel channels that carry information about either pleasant or unpleasant events. Learning more about how this information is routed and misrouted could shed light on mental illnesses including depression, addiction, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder. The study will, uh, or actually already did appear in the March 31 online issue of the journal Neuron. Now, in a previous study, the same researchers identified these two populations of brain cells involved in processing positive and negative emotions. One of these groups of brain cells relays information to the nucleus accumbens, which plays a role in learning to seek rewarding experiences. The, nuclear, the nucleus accumbens, for, uh, to, to just put it very simply, that is our pleasure and reward center of the brain. Um, if you hook up a stimulating electrode to that part of the brain of a rat, and you teach it to press a bar to stimulate that part of the brain, they will keep pressing that bar until they just keel over and die. It is uh, That is really the powerful reward center of the brain. This is what drives everything that motivates us in a positive way. It's also uh, the area of the brain that is stimulated by anything that we find Addictive, um, alcohol, drugs, sugar, gambling, relationships, what have you. Anything that uh, we can want too much of at times, that's the area of the brain we're seeking to stimulate. And then the other group of brain cells they're studying sends input to uh, a specific portion of the amygdala, the central medial amygdala for you neuroanatomists out there. And I, I just know there are a lot of you listening. But in any case, the amygdala, uh, what is that? Well, for to simplify that for you, that is basically our fear and reward, uh, fear uh, and anxiety circuitry as opposed to pleasure and reward. This is the area of the brain that assigns emotional value to fearful stimuli. Um, this, the amygdala is why we fear snakes, for example. Um, the amygdala is why um, ancient man learned to run like heck when confronted with a saber-toothed tiger. Okay. Now, in the new study, researchers wanted to find out what those brain cells actually do at the time when an animal is reacting to either a frightening or a pleasurable stimulus. To do that, they first tagged 
each of these groups of brain cells with a light-sensitive protein. And then in three groups of mice, they labeled these cells, which go to either the nucleus accumbens, the pleasure and reward center, or the central medial amygdala, the fear center, and a third population of brain cells that connects to the ventral hippocampus. Now, hippocampus is a part of the brain that processes memory, and it's important in the uh, emotional aspects of memory in particular. And the same researchers have also found that that area of the brain plays a central role in the emotion of anxiety. Uh, so the uh, light-sensitive tagging was so the researchers could get a direct look at what is happening with these brain cells right when the animals are confronted with different types of stimuli. A rather elegant way to get a very detailed look at how the brain processes emotions. So after they did all this light-sensitive labeling, they trained the mice to discriminate between two different sounds, one associated with reward and the other associated with uh, an aversive stimulus, either sweet-tasting or bitter-tasting water. And then they recorded the activity from each of these groups of brain cells as the mice confronted the different types of stimuli. And they were surprised to find that the brain cells within each of these three types of groups didn't all respond the same way. Some responded to one cue and some to the other and some to both. Some brain cells were excited by the stimulus and others were inhibited. But actually, when I looked at the results, it seems to make perfect sense. Among the brain cells that send information to the nucleus accumbens, again, that's the pleasure reward center, most were excited by the rewarding stimulus and didn't respond to the aversive stimulus. That makes sense. And then when you have the brain cells that sent messages to the central amygdala, the fear center, most were excited by the aversive stimulus, but not the rewarding one. Again, that makes plenty of sense. And then among the cells that went to the ventral hippocampus, again, they found previously that was associated with anxiety and emotional memory. These cells appear to be more balanced between responding to the positive and negative cues. Again, all of that makes perfect sense, given what we know about the functions of those brain areas. Now, the benefit of all this tinkering is that in the long term, this could lead to new therapies for mental illness. Uh, because when you identify more information about how these brain circuits work in an animal model of uh, emotions that go awry sometimes in humans, then you can try to see how they function and uh, see if you can develop strategies to restore uh, proper functioning of these circuits and translate that into human patients. Um, again, <clears throat> those of you who are thinking, what in God's name does a mouse brain have to do with how we humans function? Uh, again, you know, our brains are infinitely more complex, but 
while the, the mouse brain is certainly much simpler and easier to study in a lab, there are analogous structures. We have a nucleus accumbens and a ventral hippocampus and an amygdala in our brains as well. And um, nature has preserved the same types of structures and circuits that subsume similar functions. So uh, it really can give scientists important clues as to how our much more advanced and complex brains work if you first study it in a much simpler system. All right, now let's uh, switch gears. We'll go from brain science to social science. What you say about others says a lot about you. How positively you see others is linked to how happy, kind-hearted, and emotionally stable you are, according to new research. Your perceptions of others reveal so much about your own personality. By asking study participants to each rate positive and negative characteristics of just three people, researchers were able to find out important information about the raters' well-being, mental health, social attitudes, and how they were judged by others. This, this appears in the uh, July issue of Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, uh, July of last summer. Researchers found a person's tendency to describe others in positive terms is an important indicator of the positivity of the person's own personality traits. Strong associations were found between positively judging others and how enthusiastic, happy, kind-hearted, courteous, emotionally stable and capable the person describes oneself and is described by others. Seeing others positively reveals our own positive traits. The study also found that how positively you see other people shows how satisfied you are with your own life and how much you are liked by others. In contrast, negative perceptions of others are linked to higher levels of narcissism and antisocial behavior. The simple tendency to see people negatively indicates a greater likelihood of depression and various personality disorders. Given that negative perceptions of others may underlie several personality disorders, finding techniques to get people to see others more positively could promote the cessation of behavior patterns associated with several different personality disorders and simultaneously improve their outlook. This research suggests that when you ask someone to rate the personality of a particular coworker or acquaintance, you may learn as much about the rater providing the personality description as the person they are describing. The level of negativity the rater uses in describing the other person may indeed indicate that the other person has negative characteristics, but may also be a tip-off that the rater is unhappy, disagreeable, or has other negative personality traits. Well, there go those social scientists again. Um, <clears throat> so what's this all boil down to? Maybe what our mothers told us. If you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. And on that note, let's wrap up tonight's podcast. I hope you enjoyed the information that I enjoyed bringing to you and found it interesting and informative. But above all else, I hope that you have a wonderful stress-free week until we get together again next time. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, 
the best in chat radio designed just for you.